Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on Air. On this week's show, we'll learn how a machine can give a patient's heart and lungs time to heal. Uh, and the cardio help is a machine that take blood out of the body, pump it through the machine, put oxygen into the blood and take carbon dioxide out of the blood, and then through another tube or cannula, put the blood back into the body. Then we'll hear from New York State Health Commissioner, Dr. Howard Zucker, about three important health issues affecting baby boomers. Look for any signs or, um, or symptoms of any of these problems, and also to be very proactive on this. And we'll reflect on the history of the Upstate New York Poison Center. That uh, helped us center the Poison Center into an emergency department, which made great sense. All that, a checkup from the neck up, and a selection from our healing muse coming up right after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore a variety of health and medical issues from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll hear about prediabetes, high blood pressure, and the hepatitis C virus, three health conditions affecting baby boomers. Then we'll look back at the first 60 years of operation of the Poison Center at Upstate. But first, we'll learn how temporarily circulating blood and oxygen through a machine known as ECMO can help certain patients' hearts and lungs heal. A life-saving technology called ECMO that has been around since the 1970s is now being used in new ways. Here to explain is Dr. Christopher Tansky, Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine and the Medical Director of the ECMO Service, and Dr. Robert Dutton, Assistant Professor of Surgery and Chief of Cardiothoracic Surgery at Upstate. Thank you both for being here. Thank you for having us. So let's start by explaining what is ECMO. It stand, ECMO, it stands for something. It does. It stands for uh, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. Okay. Uh, ECMO is a lot easier to say than that. Sure. Uh, it's a technology that's been around for uh, a number of decades, uh, and it's used to provide uh, support uh, for either the heart uh, or the lungs if they're not functioning properly. And either or or either both? Either or or both. Oh, okay. Yep, so there are different modes of ECMO, uh, and it can provide support if the lungs aren't working properly. It can also provide support if the heart isn't working properly. Uh, it was originally used uh, mainly in uh, infants, and now we've started using it quite a bit more in adults. Okay, so it's been around for a few decades, right? So it, it, it has. ECMO is sort of an extension of the technology we use for our open heart surgery, in surgery, we use this technology for short periods of time, perhaps an hour or two. Uh, but ECMO is the same technology used for perhaps several days to support a oh, patient's okay. uh, heart and or lung function. Is, was it used in open-heart surgery before it was used in the premature babies? Is that where yes, it came from? very similar technology. As I say, though, it sort of has some differences that allow it to be used on a continual basis for, yep, for much longer periods of time. Okay. Well, what does the machine look like? Uh, the machine that we uh, uh, that we uh, have upstate has two uh, 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 what are called cardio help devices that we have purchased, uh, and the cardio help uh, is a machine that's uh, not much bigger than um, maybe a, a, a shoebox or two. Mm -hmm. And what it does is it has uh, cannulas uh, or tubes that come out of it that take blood out of the body, pump it through the machine 
put oxygen into the blood and take carbon dioxide out of the blood, and then through another tube or cannula, put the blood back into the body. And it used to be that this required, especially in bypass, large machines that may have taken up, you know, the size of a room. And now this has been condensed into a very small machine that's easily portable uh, and can be transported easily and is uh, very easy to use as well. So those machines uh, are what Upstate uh, is going to be using, and that'll make it easy to put patients on ECMO as well as to transport them around the hospital. Huh, wow, okay. Well, you said that this is used for um, people with for heart or for lung or both, but how, which, which types of patients? Because there's a lot of patients here with heart problems or lung problems, but which ones need ECMO? You know, it does fall into those two big categories. In terms of lung injury, patients can become sick with a lot of different things, uh, pneumonia probably being the biggest offender that we see, and some of the viral pneumonias uh, can be really quite severe. A few years ago, there was an outbreak of a flu strain known as H1N1, mm-hmm. and it particularly was hard on young, healthy people who ended up very sick in the hospital, required long-term ventilation on a ventilator, and so forth. Traditionally, the treatment for those patients is to work uh, with their lungs and using increasing pressure, increasing amounts of oxygen to sort of get, to get by until the lungs begin to heal. But it turns out that treatment's almost as bad as the disease. Using ACMA, we're, we're able to do the uh, oxygen delivery for the patient and allow their lungs to rest so that the lungs can get better uh, quicker. And it's now recognized that a lot of these folks who in the past wouldn't survive can now survive with very high uh, functional capacity afterward. Huh. ECMO can also be used to help recovering from other types of lung injury. There can be trauma injuries, burns, for example, if someone inhales smoke or toxin, uh, toxin materials out of fire uh, are all indications where uh, temporary support for lung function for perhaps three or four five days to a week or two can really allow amazing lung recovery. So the machine is is your lungs Correct. That Absolutely. Time. Wow. Correct. Yeah. For example, a patient whose kidney function is decreased can have dialysis to perhaps get them through either short or long term. This is doing the same for lung function. Oh, wow. And on the cardiac side, very similar. The the device can be altered so that it can it can provide uh, for cardiac function to allow the heart to recover if we feel that the patient has a recoverable condition or allow us what we call bridge a patient, get them to some other treatment um, okay. for, for their cardiac condition. So bridge if they needed a transplant or if they needed a... A transplant or potentially a VAD, a ventricular assist device. A device, okay. Uh, it, something okay. like that. ECMO can be used to bridge them to get to that Neat. fairly successfully. Interesting. Wow. So Upstate's, um, it sounds like we're, we've had this technology for a while and we've used it a lot. We've had the technology because we've been doing open heart surgery for a long period of time. Having the newer technology, however, as Chris says, allows us to do this in a much more patient and environment-friendly manner. The machines are are much easier to use. In the past, this sort of care would require the entire open heart surgery team be tied up perhaps on a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week basis. Now... We have uh, internally uh, excellent uh, trainees, nurses, therapists, and others in our ICUs who can manage these machines at the bedside without having uh, the need for an entire team. Um, And the units themselves are very portable and very user-friendly. 
that change in technology has really extended our ability to do this for all these indications. So how do you, uh, walk me through how a person is put on ECMO. Are they conscious necessarily to begin with, or do they know this is going to be happening to them? A patient may or may not be conscious. Usually most of our ICU patients will have some form of sedation, and they perhaps are already on a ventilator and are receiving other medications so that they're comfortable. We certainly will have a discussion with the family, and when we can with the patient, because it's very important we do that no matter what situation we're involved in. The actual institution of ECMO is done with uh, the insertion, Chris referred to cannulas. Those are tubes that we put in the patient. So this is done in an operating room? It can be done either in the operating room or many times we'll have our operating room team come to the intensive care unit ah, and okay. we'll do it where it's perhaps more convenient. We can do this with local anesthesia, however, and it's done uh, in most instances without having to make open incisions. Sometimes we can insert just a single one of these plastic tubes, which has inside of it uh, the ability to move blood in both directions. Oh, wow. The ideal goal, and Chris and I have traveled to some institutions and been to the training, it's actually possible to have patients on ECMO up and walking in the hallway, for example, and going to physical therapy and um, pursuing as normal a recovery as, as possible. Wow. It, it speaks to uh, how, how long patients can remain on ECMO. Uh, Bob talked about how uh, this kind of was an offshoot of bypass in the OR that may have been gone on for several hours. Patients who are on ECMO may need several days or longer to recover their native heart and lung function, and ECMO can provide that. Uh, it may be that uh, the patient needs four or five days of support and rest for their lungs, and then we can wean them off of ECMO. Uh, certainly, patients can be on ECMO for longer than that. Uh, they can be on for months, potentially, uh, as long as we are seeing progress in recovering them recovering from whatever the original insult was. So is there a risk, though, for being on ECMO for a long period of time? There certainly are risks. ECMO, like any medical procedure, carries with it risks. Those risks can include infection, where the intravenouses enter and exit the mm -hmm. patient. We worry about blood clotting anytime that the circulation is undergoing artificial um, you know, exposure to plastic surfaces and so forth. The, the incidence of those complications has really improved dramatically uh, recently, but it's never zero. Okay. We always have to weigh the risk versus benefit. Sure. Um, it is also possible sometimes for us to limit the risk by uh, if a patient initially needs support of both the heart and lung, sometimes we've seen the heart recover, and then we can simplify the circuit to where we're only oh, supporting okay. the lung, for example. So there's things we can do even within the process to, to try to minimize Interesting. Risk. Well, I've got some more questions, but first let me remind listeners that this is Upstate's Health Link on Air, and we're talking about ECMO with Drs. Christopher Tansky and Robert Dunton. Dr. Tansky is the medical director of Upstate's ECMO service, and Dr. Dunton is the chief of cardiothoracic surgery. So we've talked about how ECMO got started and how it's been used, but now ECMO at Upstate is part of this new clinical service that you two are working to create. So how is that going to change things? Well, I think uh, what we're looking at is uh, to try to uh, increase the availability of ECMO, 
and also to let our colleagues know uh, in different departments uh, what things it can be used for that perhaps we may not have thought about previously. Oh, such as? Well, uh, some of our uh, trauma patients who may have severe lung injury uh, could potentially benefit from ECMO, and that may not have been something that we thought about several years ago. We also see a lot of patients here at Upstate uh, that have overdoses that are, have toxicologic injuries because of our tox, our center here. Mm-hmm. And those patients could also potentially benefit from ECMO uh, if they uh, were having issues with their heart and lungs. And so what we're trying to do is build an interdisciplinary team that uh, understands when this technology and, and therapy is appropriate and how we can institute it. So. Uh, if someone today here at Upstate Hospital uh, was potentially a candidate for ECMO, there's now a process for whatever doctor is taking care of them to get a hold of uh, either Bob or myself to talk about the patient, to see if they're an appropriate candidate for ECMO, and to facilitate the process of getting them put on ECMO. And then once they're on ECMO, there's uh, a lot of uh, subtleties to managing the patient that we can help with as well to make sure that ECMO is being used appropriately and the patient is is getting the the lung rest or the heart rest that they need. Hmm, interesting. So that's here at Upstate, but what does this mean anything for the greater central New York region in terms of? I think it does. Uh, you know, Upstate certainly uh, is the, the regional referral center uh, for a large part of, for mostly all of central New York. And these patients uh, can be at other hospitals. They can be at small community hospitals in our area. And it may be that they need ECMO, but they're not able to get it at the small uh, outside hospital that they're at. So they at. would transfer here? So they could potentially come here for that. And that's a service that we want to be able to offer to the community because the alternative is they might have to go somewhere else further away. Okay. And uh, we would certainly like to keep the patients near their families here in central New York. And so being able to offer that service is uh, beneficial. Great. Well, tell me about um, something called eCPR. eCPR is uh, a new way of doing cardiopulmonary resuscitation for patients who have cardiac arrest. These are patients whose heart is stopped. And previously, you would do CPR, and you would try to give medications, and you would shock them and see if you could uh, get them to to recover from that. And the survival rates from that have traditionally been very, very low. Mm -hmm. In select patients where uh, the cardiac arrest uh, is witnessed and where the patient is able to get to the hospital quickly, there's a potential to put them on ECMO directly while CPR is ongoing and then take over their heart function for them so that you now have time to figure out what caused the arrest originally. Wow. So this is something that's uh, very state-of-the-art and something that is only appropriate in specific cases, uh, not in every case, but it's something that really has the potential to offer patients uh, who have a reversible cause of their cardiac arrest a better chance, a much better chance at survival than they might have already seen. Wow. In theory, it sounds like that'd be wonderful if you could have ECMO available just to... It is. It's the sort of thing where we want to make sure that we're doing it uh, the right way and we want to make sure that we're selecting the right patients because uh, certainly some patients are not candidates for it because the arrest happened too long ago. But uh, we're definitely looking into doing that and it can also be used for cardiac arrest that happen in the hospital potentially as well. Okay. Well, I know this is um, getting organized now, but looking ahead in the next five years, what do you foresee this um, service looking like? One of the things I think it could lead us to is new technologies. For example, Chris mentioned ventricular assist devices. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in our field of cardiac surgery, the ability to use these small pumps to replace someone's heart function is becoming an everyday reality. And I think in the very near future, those are going to become very critical for us to have for uh, our patient population. Having a robust ECMO program is the first step toward having that sort of technology available. Also, I think there's some really exciting other technologies that are coming along to help out with failing organ systems. And using this ECMO, if you will, as a platform, I think will allow us to be able to offer those. Other neat. For patients, yes, across the board. So I think it opens up new areas to us. Uh, and also here at Upstate has been a program we're very proud of as it, it sort of cuts across all disciplines. It involves everybody. The people that, that talked to us at the international or national meetings we went to called ECMO a team sport. Hmm. And it really does bring all the best of an institution together. Great. Well, I want to thank both of you for coming to talk. Uh, this has been Dr. Dutton, the Chief of Cardiothoracic Surgery, and Dr. Tansky, the Medical Director of Upstate's ECMO Service. And this is Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Next up, New York State's health commissioner talks about three underdiagnosed medical conditions affecting baby boomers on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Smith, and this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Dr. Howard Zucker, Commissioner for the New York State Health Department, visited Upstate Medical University recently to speak with healthcare providers about undiagnosed health conditions in people born between 1945 and 1965, otherwise known as the baby boomers. Dr. Zucker carved out some time to speak with HealthLink on Air about hepatitis C, high blood pressure, and prediabetes. Welcome, Dr. Zucker. Uh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for being here. So we're talking about people who are in their 50s to 70s, roughly, and we'll be looking at hepatitis C, high blood pressure, prediabetes. But before we get into those details, let's talk about this group of people and how you would characterize them. Well, I think the baby boomer population is a group that uh, doesn't take no for an answer. If there's a problem, they want a solution. Uh, they have been a generation, they are a generation that has always looked for solutions. They are very um, uh, adventurous. They are also a group that are um, nonconformist in some ways. Okay. And, and we, the baby boomer population in New York State uh, is growing. Uh, one out of every five um, New Yorkers in 2025 will be over the age of 65. So that's a large percentage. And in the United States, about 45 million Americans are over uh, 65 right now. Lots of them. Um, and they, they've also got experience with healthcare. They've seen the value of vaccines. That's correct. Um, they're the first generation with the uh, birth control pill that's access. Correct. And that's correct. So, um, so the eradication of smallpox. Uh, right. And, and they've also seen pretty much almost the eradication of polio and all the uh, implications of not getting vaccinated. Okay. All right. But even still, there's these issues that are coming up that can affect a lot right. of the the baby boomers. So let's talk about um, first 
um, pre-diabetes. So what is pre-diabetes? So when, when we look at diabetes, um, and there are uh, markers, there are hemoglobin A1C markers, and, and when your level is starting to potentially creep up there, uh, you are setting yourself up for potential of getting diabetes. So you want to do interventions early on to um, change lifestyle, change your diet, um, and uh, prevent yourself from going down the path of ending up uh, 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 with, diabetes with diabetes and all the implications of what that would mean. So hemoglobin, that's a blood test? Well, it's a blood test, hemoglobin A1C test that we, it's important to monitor. Okay, so would this come up in a regular checkup with a? Right, right. so this is where the importance of speaking with your physician or nurse practitioner, whoever your healthcare provider is, uh, about preventive health, about uh, monitoring your blood pressure, monitoring, uh, checking your hemoglobin A1C, uh, talking to them about what your diet is, your exercise, and, and all the other things that go along with maintaining a healthy lifestyle. So if you find out about this, you can do things to stop your, you from developing diabetes right, or, or, or delay or stop or, or, to, or to turn the, uh, turn the tide for you. Okay. So for example, if you're overweight, and you're not on an exercise program, and maybe you need to do something to improve your uh, your diet and to uh, get more physically active to change the course of uh, what the path that you're on. Okay, good, good to know. Now, um, uncontrolled high blood pressure—that's another issue. And sure. I, that high blood pressure, your blood pressure gets taken when you go to a, for a checkup too. Is that how it's usually discovered that you well, have? In, in a, a lot of ways, it, it, it is discovered. Uh, in um, sometimes it's. Um, actually fortuitous, but uh, you walk into an emergency room, let's say you sprain your ankle or you go in for something else and, and the um, triage nurse or whoever is checking you takes your blood pressure and notices it's elevated. could be just elevated because you're in an emergency room, but then that may put you into the, uh, into the system a little bit more and recommend that you go back to your health professional and have it checked again. And sometimes it's, it's, that's where it's picked up. You don't, you don't even realize it. Well, they say it's silent. Is that because it people is. could have it and not know? Right, and, and sometimes you don't realize all the symptoms. Uh, th there may not be many symptoms, but all the effects of high blood pressure on your body uh, are, are maybe occurring, and whether it's issues with your kidneys, uh, issues with your heart, uh, issues with, um, with um, potential risks of stroke, particularly with uh, markedly elevated blood pressure. So tell me about when you were a medical student learning to take blood pressures. So, so I... Uh, so I um, learned how to take my, uh, my blood pressure and, and also I was uh, actually uh, taking my mom's blood pressure because I was trying to learn uh, how to uh, uh, use the blood pressure cuff and I noticed that her blood pressure was elevated and needless to say she said, you're obviously doing this wrong. Uh, well, let's ask dad because my dad's a, a physician. He took it and said, no, your, your blood pressure's up. And so that's how my own mom's uh, elevated blood pressure that's was picked she up. Learned. Yeah, she learned okay. by my uh, first year medical student. Uh, Wow. learning how to use the blood pressure cuff. Well, it can really be a marker for um, health problems later on and, and things that are going on that would not have been detected otherwise. Right. Tell me about your trip to Haiti. You also... So, so one of the things I noticed is that you know, stress, a lot of things uh, can cause your blood pressure to be elevated. And when I went down there for, uh, on a medical mission after the earthquake um, to do anesthesia, everyone was on the operating table. And sometimes the, the operations were not... Uh, a significant operation, but they all had elevated blood pressure. Everyone, whether they were young, uh, older, uh, in their 20s, and all of them, and even when they were in the recovery room, and sometimes I saw them afterwards, and once I was checking someone just to see. And I think that there was just a lot of stress after earthquake and all, all the challenges. Oh, wow. So a chronic, uh, chronically stressed, chronically uh, um, uh, subjected to a lot of um, challenges can 
wow. uh, affect your health, as we know. And uh, and blood pressure is one of those things, as you mentioned before, as a silent uh, silent killer is something which we may not uh, notice as quickly. And so it's really important to, to keep an eye on that. Okay. All right. And uh, hepatitis C also, that's a, that's a sure. huge issue for baby boomers. Sure. Um, so tell me a little bit about why this is a concern for us. So it's interesting that there is a... Uh, um, a concern with hepatitis C because in the past, whether it was um, um, blood transfusions weren't weren't uh, mm-hmm. uh, checked for, for hepatitis C, so that was how some individuals got hepatitis C. There was also a lot of uh, hepatitis C from intravenous drug uh, drug use. Sure. Uh, but what we've noticed is there's also an elevation in hepatitis C now in the 20 to 30 year olds. So I think again it goes back to the issue of doing everything you can to. Um, monitor your health and to be uh, very proactive uh, and uh, prevent any kind of problems. Hepatitis C you, uh, can go on to cause uh, liver failure, uh, liver problems. A lot of times liver transplants were, were the, the treatment. But there are medications now that actually can uh, cure hepatitis C. So it's important to know um, uh, if you have this and, and to get the appropriate treatment as quickly as possible. Somewhere I saw that 90% of the people who shot up once or yes. did intravenous drugs once um, are so like that's one of the statistics this. that we've heard, yeah. Wow. And this is the most common chronic viral disease in the United States? Right, that's correct. That's surprising, really. Right, right, right. Okay. Um, tell me about uh, New York State uh, New York State has a hepatitis C testing law that's so, unique. So we, we do have a law that, that re, uh, uh, provides the opportunity to get, to get tested for hepatitis C. And I think this is imp- goes back to the issue um, that if you have health uh, education, uh, Mm -hmm. knowledge about your own personal health, uh, ability to communicate um, your concerns, and also to work with your friends, family, loved ones, whoever is uh, is within your sphere of uh, uh, contacts to say, hey, maybe you should be checked for this. And often what happens is that somebody says to you, maybe you should go and be checked for this, or I read something about it. And that's why health uh, information is important. Correct information is important. I know there's a lot of information out there and you need to be sure it's accurate. And to ask questions. And it goes back to this baby boomer um, point that we spoke about before because the baby boomer population will walk into the doctor's office and ask a lot of questions. And we want them. We want everyone to do that. And they won't take, well, we'll see or no as an answer. They will say, well, tell me more about it. I want to learn more about it. And that's good. good. Be very proactive about your health. Interesting. Okay, well, I've got some more questions, but first let me remind listeners that this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air, and we're talking with New York State Health Commissioner Dr. Howard Zucker about baby boomer health issues. So we focused on um, some of the undiagnosed health conditions, but there's other health conditions that affect baby boomers that come on just from the process of aging. So how big of a deal is are these things going to be, and what are these things? Right, so obviously one of the big things that we've heard a lot about and we read about is the issues of uh, Alzheimer's um, and uh, other um, uh, and, and other conditions, uh, neurological conditions, but also um, autoimmune diseases, arthritis, osteoporosis. So I think, again, it, it is important to look for any signs or, um, or symptoms of any of these problems uh, that, that may occur, and then also to be very proactive on this. Um, there, everyone always tries to turn to a medicine for a treatment, but sometimes the uh, treatments are, are um, preventive and, and, um, and uh, 
can help. So, for example, on some of the things about arthritis, exercise, uh, you know, sometimes people are swimming, some other mm-hmm. things that can help you uh, doesn't mean that you're going to stop the course of, of, of a disease, but you can help uh, make uh, your lifestyle Make it better. a little more bearable, bearable. or yeah, something. Yeah, and, okay. and I think that some of the other issues that we are addressing uh, with the issues of um, of Alzheimer's, and we, we've been focused on this. The uh, Governor Cuomo is committed uh, to addressing this. Uh, there's money that we have put in from the state uh, to um, uh, work to find uh, both health care givers and also to um, uh, to address this problem in the bigger picture. Okay. Well, let's talk about something that's becoming a major public health concern that you might not necessarily think in terms of health, and that's um, loneliness. Right. How is that playing into public health? So I, I think that we... As a society, we're very social, and, 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 and it is very helpful to have um, peers and, and others to, to um, both provide happiness and, and, uh, and enjoyment, but also I think it's important uh, that sometimes when you you're sort of have a buddy system in some ways, they may suggest or, or say, let's go out and, and take a walk. So you get someone out of the house, a little bit more activity. Also, uh, communication keeps your mind more active. And, and, uh, and I think that one of the other things that we, we recognize is that loneliness, uh, you know, there are concerns that uh, it makes you less, like, less apt to have a good meal, and, and it sets you up for, for other diseases. And so so I then think you can't find infections because your right, right. immunity is not strong Correct. enough. You're not Correct. strong. Right. We are, we're a social... Uh, social uh, you know, Creatures and, 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 and I think it's really important that we, we try to avoid that and whatever we can do. And I think that in many ways, one of the things we also can do is cross-generational. You know, have someone mm. older and younger, you know, and this is you know, when people have grandchildren and, and, and grandparents or, or just being out there in a park and, and, and just seeing and interacting with others. And I think this is really helpful both uh, for our own, um, uh, our own physical health as well as our own mental, mental health. health. Yeah. Good, good. All right, well, now tell me about the health across all policies approach that Governor Cuomo introduced this year. Sure. So Governor Cuomo uh, is, is committed to looking at this in the, in the big picture. And what we realize is that health is not something that just falls within the Department of Health, but it, it, it should be looked at in all of our departments across the state. So he has asked us to look at um, the other departments, for example, the Department of Transportation, Department of Agriculture and Markets. So how do we, with transportation, for example, how do we create an environment where the streets are, are um, easier to, to walk on? Uh, let's say if there, are, there are ways uh, to be sure that you're safe and you're not going to mm, you know, uh, sure. uh, run a risk of getting hurt. Uh, the governor is also committed to, uh, in his, um, in his um, state of the state, mention that he wants to have a, a, a parks, uh, a trail across the entire state of New York. And what better to uh, way to get some recreation and get, and get some ex- activity than to be able to go out there and walk uh, right in your neighborhood, right across you know, different parts of the state uh, to get some physical activity. Uh, the government has also asked uh, my department, the Department of Health, to work with the Department of Agriculture and Markets to look at nutritious um, uh, foods and how to get a, a better, uh, healthier foods out there. And to, you know, New York has an incredible amount of uh, farms right. and, and really great Foods. So how do we get those foods into the school system? How do we get uh, uh, better nutrition? So how do we work with others to do this? So okay. uh, health across all policies is to look at all the different departments on this issue. Okay. And uh, the governor wants us to become the first age-friendly state? Correct. So there aren't any, quote, age-friendly states. The, um, the World Health Organization uh, has uh, 
looked at uh, eight friend, friendly countries, and and uh, and we want to be the the state that's the that's friendly for all all ages, and particularly uh, efforts to make sure that those who are who are aging in the state uh, can stay right in their home. People don't want to move and leave, particularly when they. 70, 80 years of age, they want to stay right where they are. So how do we make it where it works for them? Neat. Interesting. Well, thanks. Thanks for being here. Well, I thank appreciate you very it. much. I really appreciate it. Okay. This has been Amber Smith speaking about baby boomer health issues with the New York State Health Commissioner, Dr. Howard Zucker, for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up. The sun shines brighter, or what can we do now? Well, folks, whenever I wake in the morning and snap up the shades and see the sun shining bright, I feel good. Life is better when the sun is shining. And feeling good emotionally cascades into good physical effects like a stronger immune system and lower blood pressure that make us live healthier and longer. But I'm lucky. I'm white. And the sun shines brighter for white people. Or rather, racism pulls a shade over even sunny days for many people of different races here in the U.S., and predictably, these people on average suffer for more from many diseases and premature disability and die several years younger than white people. No doubt, many things account for these differences, including less access to education, leading to less income and poorer nutrition, and less access to health care, etc. And of course, the negative emotional effects of discrimination the blatant and the subtle but pervasive, the so-called microaggressions that taint their everyday lives, like being eyed suspiciously in stores or people avoiding eye contact rather than being treated neighborly. Now, racism is an enormous centuries-old problem in America, and it is tempting to throw up one's hands and say, there's nothing I can do about it. The problem is way bigger than me. And while it's true that such ingrained racism will take prolonged, concerted work to overcome, I've found there are some simple things one can do easily that make a difference. For example, I make it a habit to make eye contact, the unshun, and say hello, good morning, what a day, huh? To people, regardless of race, on the street, in the hospital, at the gym, wherever, even if they're not looking at me to start. And you know what? I almost always get a friendly hello, good morning, yes, isn't it, back at me, often with a surprised tone. And we make friendly eye contact. And I find I feel better myself. Better relationships lead to better feelings and better health. I bet We'll all live longer and happier as we improve the emotional health of our communities one good day at a time. I'm psychologist Dr. Rich. Say hello, be happier, live longer, O'Neill. Thanks for tuning in.
Coming up next, 60 years of poison prevention. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's Health Link on Air, Amber Smith here with you. One of the nation's 55 poison centers is right here in Syracuse at Upstate Medical University. The Upstate New York Poison Center offers free, confidential, expert medical advice around the clock to help reduce the number, cost, and severity of poisonings within its 54-county service area. The center is celebrating a milestone this year, and here to tell about it is Education Coordinator Lee Livermore. Welcome, Lee. Thank you for having me. So this year marks how many years that we've had a poison center in operation? 60 years. 60 years. (laughs) So tell me how it all began. Take us back. We go all the way back to 1957, and there was a merge between the uh, Syracuse Hospital as well as the health department and the Department of Maternal Child and Health Mm -hmm. to form a health department to form the poison center. And that was to address the issue of unintentional poison exposures that do happen to everyone of all ages. However, there's a strong predominance of poisoning to young children under the age of five. Okay. All right. So that was sort of the, that's how it began. That was the very uh, simple beginnings. And then 22 years later, in uh, around 1975, the Poison Center became a part of Upstate Hospital. And it was uh, uh, taken under the direction of Dr. Howard Weinberger. And that uh, helped us center the Poison Center into an emergency department, which made great sense because the simple origins of a Poison Center was a telephone that was located in an emergency department and then a emergency room doctor, if they were available, would answer the call and then be able to address Mm -hmm. whatever issue. So from that very, very simple beginning of back when we had rotary phones uh, to now a very highly sophisticated technology-driven environment that we're able to address all forms of poison exposure. And it's not just a physician answering a phone call when they have time. You've got a whole staff of toxicologists and people that specialize in poisonings. That is correct. We Our staff is a little over 40 at our poison center. We expanded because we do now cover 54 out of 62 counties in New York State. And the staff that answers the poison center are some of the most amazing people that they have to have a designation of either a RN or a pharmacist, at least a year in emergency management, And then when they join the Poison Center, there is a very extensive learning curve as well as a process to get up to speed with all the type of poison exposures in our systems. So it truly are getting an expert in poison when somebody dials the number for the Poison Center. And some of your staff does not just phone consultations, but are, are doing hospital consults on patients too, right? Absolutely. We have uh, toxicologists and emergency room doctors that are part of up 
the upstate New York Poison okay. Center. So when cases are locally in the Syracuse area, we have the ability to actually go to the bedside and view the case. Interesting. So tell me a little bit about what sorts of calls were typical. I know you weren't working there 60 years ago, but <laughs> what types of calls were typical back at the beginning and, and contrast that with the types of things that you see today coming in? Unintentional poison exposures, and they involve all the type of household products, typically your cleaning products, your um, medicines, cosmetics, products that you would have in the laundry room or in your garage or workshop mm. area. Um, medicines are a very, very big part of it. Um, mostly all poison exposures, typically involving young children, happen because of a look-alike factor. Mm -hmm. And a poison exposure typically will happen when a product is in use or it's available, or if it's taken out of its original container. So as an example, if you pour a liquid into a cup, and it might be a cleaning product such as pine salt. Mm -hmm. And pine salt in a cup would look a lot like apple juice or a sure. various other beverage. So now that look-alike factor creates an opportunity for exposure. And the same thing happens with candy or medicine, is that there's only so many shapes, sizes, and color. But if you take a medicine out of its original container, it looks a lot like candy to a young child. Right, right. A lot of them more so than others, but yes. Yeah. All right. Well, what um, what's a day like at the Poison Center? I know they're all different, but what's a typical day like? Are the phones ringing in the morning, afternoon? Uh, yes, and, and it's a very difficult uh, uh, pattern to try to identify uh, because poisons do happen around the clock. Uh, we usually have a staff um, available three to four people on the phones to handle our large area. We always have two to three toxicologists that are available to handle that next level of call, as well as we have Dr. Richard Canner, who is our emergency room pediatrician at Upstate, and Dr. Ross Sullivan is mm -hmm. head of our our poison exposure um, uh, department. And he's also heading up addiction, which is some of the newer things that were involved in poisoning. Okay. Uh, and we should say the number is 1-800-222-1222. That is correct. And we strongly recommend that if uh, someone has a cell phone, program the number directly into your cell phone because this is a number that's nationally available. And no matter where you are in the country, you dial the number, it'll route your call to the closest poison center from where the call originates. Great. So no matter where know. you are, you're going to get a poison center. Wonderful. Great. Well, let me remind our listeners that this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air, and we're talking with Lee Livermore, an education coordinator with the Upstate New York Poison Center. Um, so I wanted to talk a little about the role of the poison center. I know that you have some teaching uh, you have a teaching role, um, so if you can explain that a little bit, and then um, some of the uh, things that you do in the community. Okay. Um, I always like to refer to it as when we pull the curtain back and all the activity <laughs> that happens behind the scenes, because the general public is familiar that we have a, 
number, telephone number that they can call and they could always get an expert. However, it's the education components that go on behind the scenes, such as I do the public education. So anywhere in the public purview that I can help teach um, someone how to prevent an unintentional poisoning from happening. And then we also have professional education. So we have our director and our spies, and a spy is an acronym for a specialist in poison information. They go out into the community, so they speak at grand rounds, at hospitals, to EMTs, um, and they give it from the professional medical position as to how to handle a poison patient. Then on top of that, we have both a medical and a clinical fellowship at the Poison Center. In addition to rotation of emergency medicine students, EMTs, nurses, um, pretty much anyone from any facet of the medical field has an opportunity to do a rotation and to learn about toxicology at the Poison Center. Interesting. Good. Now, um, I I know that you go out into schools and do community education things. Um, Are there other uh, projects that you have in the works with other community members? Um, As of recently, in the last few years, because of the uh, increased amount of synthetic drugs that have uh, entered into our world, Uh, along with the heroin and the opioid abuse, several members of our poison center, including myself, sit on various drug task force uh, community organizations throughout our coverage area. So that way we're able to offer um, the data from the poison center as well as our expertise advice when we're dealing with a huge community event like how do we deal with synthetic drugs as well as the heroin and opioid abuse. Okay. Um, we also do a program that started up this year for Onondaga County, and it's the SNAD program, which stands for Sharps, Needles, and Drug Disposal. We realize that to combat part of unintentional poison exposures through medicine, um, that we needed to have a way to get the medicines out of people's homes and into a proper disposal channel. Okay. The DEA still conducts twice a year a national drug take-back day, and we noticed that just two days out of the year are not enough. So with the guidance of Gail Bannock and a drug task force through the DA's office and the Onondaga County Health Department, they put this program together. This allows us to set up these drug disposable boxes in law enforcement agencies that are available 24-7 so residents of the county can bring their drugs, dispose of them, and then the law enforcement takes those drugs to Govanta and then they incinerate them, which is the most efficient, effective way of getting drugs out of our community and avoid from having them end up in our wastewater treatment systems. Right. Instead of throwing them in the trash at home, dispose of them properly at a police or sheriff's station. That is correct. Good. That's Um, good to know. Another program I'm involved in uh, nationally is an older adult medicine safety is that uh, a perception that a lot of people have is uh, poisonings only happen to children. And so when they get past a certain age, they know better. Well, because we have so many medicines available in our world today, that even helping educate our older adults as to 
how to keep medicine safe, up and out of the way, and to avoid an unintentional medicine mismanagement. So our poison center has taken part with several other poison centers in this national endeavor to help educate our older adults on medicine safety. Interesting. Well, tell me um, if you have a way of measuring how many calls does the poison center get per week or per month these days? What's typical? Well, I'll, I'll go back to the beginning. And prior to 1960, our poison center then covered 12 counties. And we had an annual call volume of a little over 1,000 calls. Today, our poison center on an annual basis receives a little over 50,000 calls to our poison center. Wow. And that does not always include the return calls that we make. Um, in the beginning, we got a lot of calls from the general public, and today, now the higher volume of our calls come from healthcare departments, emergency facilities, and the type of calls have a higher level of acuity, meaning that the calls the the patient is sicker than they've ever More been. More complex before. case to yes. okay, wow, interesting. Okay, so tell me about the Walgreens partnership. I'd be happy to. We're very proud to partner with Walgreens on the newest program called On the Road, where pharmacists and pharmacy interns are going out into the community teaching safe medication and safe medication disposal. The program is focusing on teens and young parents. And with this sort of community involvement, it just shows the power of partnerships and how proud we are to partner with Walgreens. And again, being safe about medication disposal. And Absolutely. Neat. Well, it sounds like the Poison Center has evolved with the needs of the community and that you're going to continue to. So thank you for talking with me. This has been Amber Smith talking with Education Coordinator Lee Livermore from the Upstate New York Poison Center for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. I love when poets take an object and make of it a symbol so wildly opposite to how we usually see the object. In her poem, Two Boys in the Halfway House, Pennsylvania writer Mary Aguilas fuses onions with addiction recovery in an unforgettable poem about hope. Two boys in the halfway house. That Saturday, when we made soup, you chucked an onion across the room where I fielded it like a flyball. Chop it up, you said. I didn't even know where to begin. The sight of the onion in my hand surprised me, the heft of it filling me with a kind of secret joy. Not long ago, I held other things in my hands, burnt spoons and blackened foil, powders and glassine. Now it comes down to this onion so forgiving and unassuming in the hollow of my palm. Maybe that's the answer, I tell you. Maybe we should take a new prayer to our next meeting. Lord, when we are tempted, may you fill our hands with onions. Lord, bless our tempters and fill their hands with onions. You laugh and tell me I'm crazy. I tell you maybe, but really, I'm already praying.
Thank you for listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us next week when we explore physician burnout and we learn about a drug that's drastically lowering the transmission of HIV. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening.